Hi, before we get started, just a quick heads up. The Canadian Advisor Tech Expo is going to be taking place on November 14th to 17th between 12 and 5 p.m. Eastern Time, virtually online. It is the premier conference for advisors to learn more about technologies available to them and about transforming their digital practice. Please note that the previous ad before my podcast had the incorrect date. This is a correction. Hope to see you there. And now on to today's show. Hello, welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, we have Timothy Nui, founder and co-CEO of Finclusion. Finclusion is an African-based neobank that is basically tackling a lot of the structural issues in banking in Africa in a digital way. And with that, here's my interview with Timothy. Timothy, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks, Jason. Very glad to be here and appreciate you having us. So, Timothy Nui of Finclusion, tell us about Finclusion. I think what we're trying to do with Finclusion is build the neobank for all Africans. And then what that means to us is building a neobank that offers basic financial services, starting with credit, because we think credit is the hardest thing to get right, and yet the most needed in the you know current ecosystem with the continuously existing MSME and retail credit gap on the continent. Today, our lending products predominantly are uh, either employer or merchant distributed, ranging from earned wage access to payroll loans and from buy now, pay later to merchant lending facilities. Over time, we plan to augment these products with savings, deposits, transactional cards to really migrate into a full spectrum neobank and be the single home for people's financial needs on the continent. Strategically, we have a partner first distribution strategy because we believe that gives us the access to a captive audience and addresses some of the distribution challenge in Africa using networks that partners have already created. We start with borrowing. We'll be moving into transactions where we started now through our merchant lending facilities and add insurance, investments, and savings over time. Everything we do is digitally facilitated, but obviously some of our partners do have a brick and mortar presence. In what we've done today, we've built about a $25 million loan book. We give out about $3 million of credit every month, and we predominantly distinguish ourselves with our AI-based credit scoring, where we've consistently outperformed the markets from a collections and repayment perspective on the back of our scoring models. So ultimately, over the next couple of years, you know, we believe we can build a billion-dollar-plus lending business across the African continent, replicate what we've successfully built today in five countries in Africa, across the geographic regions of the continent, on the back of a profitable lending model. So I think that, in a nutshell, is, is, is where we are today. And we're very excited on the impact that can make on the continent, where even today, 650 million African adults have no access to formal banks, with options to borrow often limited to 30% per month rates, yet we can offer people the ability to fund themselves at an APR of about 56%. So we'll dive into a bunch of that. Tell me about the history about Finclusion, how it came to be. So basically, I think Finclusion is a a continuation of my personal journey in, in many ways. I've been doing African financial services since 2010 uh, when I joined a German company called ADC, African Development Corporation, a business that bought banks on the continent that we successfully sold to Bob Diamonds at Las Mara in 2014. I saw in that business that there's a massive gap in SME and retail credit, and there is consistently high margins that allow you to you know, profitably scale this business unit that's often overlooked by traditional banks. I then joined a microfinance group that I helped scale into 12 markets in Africa, build a $200 million plus loan book before having a bit of a strategic difference of opinion with the founders in 2018. And I ended up moving on. And, and I still felt that there is no, no one really addressing that credit gap effectively with products and solutions that truly address the market needs on the ground. And we could make a real difference. So, so that was the history of me starting Finclusion. We started off building the tech and really come up with alternative ways of scoring, looking at transactional data better, 
but also making sure user journeys were as efficient as possible and back-end processing tech was built efficiently. I think very often tech is built optimally for users, you know, customers, but it's not effectively built for staff members and internal users, which are equally important in the loan turnaround time. After building the tech, we uh, followed a buy and build strategy. We've bought micro lending operations since the end of 2019, bought over four operations and integrated them. We've also started two operations, Greenfield, and everything what we do is, is focus on standardizing the tech, standardizing the distribution strategy, and from there, really scaling on the back of a proven underwriting model. In 2021, most notably, we raised about $20 million from Lendable, the Kenyan-based you know, Frontier Fund, which was our first significant institutional fundraising, and I think tantamount to the process we've made over the last couple of years. So you hit on a number of interesting points. Let's talk about the core problem you deal with specific, well, specifically in Africa compared to, say, more developed nations like the US and UK elsewhere. And that has to do with the AI-based models on credit scoring. And just can you speak to the challenge on credit scoring already and how you've solved that through artificial intelligence? Absolutely. So I think there's different challenges, right? So, so the biggest challenge is, is that traditional data is oftentimes not available on our types of clientele. So the easy accessible credit score or simple repayment behavior isn't available. What is available is a whole lot of different data points that by themselves aren't actually per se predictable. So someone's bank account history, someone's uh, geo graphical presence, someone's behavior in a credit application. And without the presence of, of AI tech, we wouldn't be able to actually analyze all of these data points and come up with a single outcome or decision. Yet through applying AI models, we can basically analyze all of these data points and come up with a decision, as well as basically continuously improve our scoring methodology, looking at all potential historic data outcomes over and over again to see where we find logical interactions and causal relationships that we think are meaningful enough to pursue. So I think the biggest challenge in credit on the continent is access to data and the relative uh, small size of loans. So we can't afford to spend too much money on a single loan. So it's incredibly important that most of the loan processing is done automatically without incurring marginal costs because there's no basis for marginal costs. When you give out a $50 or $100 loan, you can't afford to spend more than cents on processing that loan. Yeah. What's the average loan size you're typically seeing? So for us, we, we move people up quickly. So because we believe in installment loans, we believe in doing meaningful things on the continent. Our average loan size is about $1,000, but our initial loan size is often somewhere between $100 to $200 uh, initial loan size. We're looking to move that down further over time as we introduce some of the nano lending modules and overdraft facilities where we basically move into a card infrastructure. So one of the reasons we'd like to move forward with our card offering is because it will allow us to effectively generate a loan from any purchase someone makes. Mm. Uh, and we've recently launched, you know, first pilots in that regards. So, I mean, yeah, when you talk about loans of that size, then you're right, incremental cost on or marginal cost per transaction is going to just eat your margin away ridiculously, right? I mean, even even a $1 per <laughs> marginal cost on a $100 loan is 1% of the interest swallowed up right away. So, okay, uh, let's talk about the various lines of business. I mean, you talked about where you want to go with the cards, but I might come back to that in a second. So, you know, you have three major verticals noted on your website. The first one's earned wage access. Uh, can you define that clearly and talk about um, how that works? Absolutely. So earned wage access for us is, is, is distributing via employers. Where we are different is we don't just give you access to this month's salary. So we give you access to your earned wages in the typical earned wage access. You've worked 10 days. You can pre-draw 10 out of 30 days of your salary. 
we give you an advance, we collect of your salary at month end. Oftentimes, the costs are paid by the employer. Sometimes, it's a small fee to the employee. We, however, also do future wage access where we give you a loan, which you can repay over 12 to 24 months lo- uh, month using about 30% of your income as a maximum installment. So now, instead of giving you a small access to your monthly salary, we can actually give you a sizable facility you can use for for anything you'd like, repay it off the back of your payroll. Those are probably the two variations of earned wage access. We work with any employer, more than 200 employees, but we prefer to work with larger employers. So, you know, the effort of integration really becomes worth it. And that's, I mean, honestly, this is, you know, an alternative to the concept of payday lending in North America. I'm not sure how that works in, in Africa, but the, you know, being able to to basically access money that you've already kind of earned or in the short term or is are working to earn in the short term is a huge, huge, um, huge benefit. Okay. So then you get into the small to medium size enterprise financing. Talk to me about the specific challenges there around it. Is it just the same as, is it the same as what you're seeing on the personal side or how does that business side of the business differ from the personal credit scoring? I think it's the same challenge, which is a lack of data. But it's the, the alleviating of the challenge is different because where we basically have addressed that data challenge to personal mobile money statements, bank account, geo uh, data on customers, you know, a very small loan doesn't really work for an SME customer because you can't start off with a $100 loan for a business. So the single risk is higher. So effectively, SMEs, we do two things. If they have uh, frequent transactions... And we can actually score of either pulse data where they have either their mobile wallet till or their you know true card till, or they have a bank account with transactions. We can do it off transactional history. Otherwise, we have to initially go off security. We register a pledge over either vehicle, title deed, lands, corporate personal guarantees to start build a trading relationship until we basically can verify the cash flow because the the relative size of the business. I think that's where. What we really differ there is turnaround time. SMEs do have other places to take credit from, but mostly people will take up to three weeks to process a loan and people need the loan right now. Yeah. We can turn an SME loan around same day, worst case 24 hours, and give people access to the capital they need in a sustainable manner. And I think on the back of that reliability, we then try and keep customers and basically incentivize them to continue working with us as their preferred you know, source of funding, uh, specifically as truly SME finance sites, they oftentimes are also uh, earned wage access providers. And the final thing we do with SMEs is we provide buy now, pay later solutions to their clients, where the SME may not be the one taking the credit, but we give credit to their customers so that implicitly they're still able to turn customers around quicker, shorten their sales cycle, and as a result, are able to buy more inventory and up up their size, up their growth. So 24 hours, the credit, being able to access the information to score them via credit, their credit is is actually, you know, a quick process if you can get access to that data. But you talked about like utilizing security, uh, sorry, you talked about uh, them pledging security. How do you expedite that process digitally? So it depends by market. So some, some markets it works, many other markets it doesn't. But depending on the relationship, we can take a risk. So if we have the original title deed and we verified in the title deeds office that no replacement has been requested, which we can do digitally, then we don't have to per se finish the full registration process to disburse because the risk of someone actually then still managing to request a new replacement certificate before we've lodged our title deed becomes small relative to the total opportunity. So it really depends case by case. Uh, we take the original security documents and then we basically make an assessment. And then the other thing we do with people is we basically incentivize to say, look, 
once you've repaid the loan, leave the security in place because that means next time around you can draw instantly on your credit because you have security in place. It, it very much depends on the type of title deeds. With cars, we use vehicle logbooks. Someone will need to go drive into a dealership of a partnered merchant so we can verify car value, ensure that it's still in good state and is in the state people have confirmed. And then again, the vehicle logbook document can be taken by the car dealer. We can check digitally that it's not reported stolen or anything. And then the lodging process, we do it after the loan disbursement. Well, this is one of those areas where you uh, you see a lot of developing nations or, or uh, other countries basically come up with solutions that are far better than what we see in North, North American developed world. Because, I mean, uh, being able to ping those things remotely through your systems and actually having those fully digitized, those types of records fully digitized is something still lacking in many, quote unquote, developed nations. It's always quite interesting to see where we get leapfrogged. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, I guess it's, it's 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 a relative need, right? I mean, no one would ask you for your house title deed for a small loan in uh, in the rest of the world, probably vis-a-vis emerging markets where that's still an opportunity. But absolutely, I guess it's 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 one of the benefits of building some of the infrastructure in Africa from scratch that that infrastructure then gets built based on modern day design principles, so to say. So. Um... Well, let's get into your transactional banking. So you already mentioned buy now, pay later for the SMEs. But when you're talking about transactional banking, besides credit cards, you're also talking about BNPL options at point of uh, point of purchase for them. Is that an option? Yes. So, so that's quite critical for us. So we've basically started both through either mobile money options or card options to allow people to use a buy now, pay later option, either at 0% or at an interest rate. And today, that's really all the transactional capacity we offer. These sort of savings accounts, transactional accounts will follow hopefully in the next 12 months. But today, we really focus on driving that, that buy now, pay later capacity. I think it works extremely well in emerging markets because you benefit from people's you know, instant gratification desire. You allow them to transact and you facilitate a point of sale, effectively eliminating our acquisition costs quite materially. So for us, it's a great source for new clients, capturing them at the point where they want to make a purchase. Yeah. And I mean, it's also different needs. I think I think probably in some of those nations, you're looking at more fundamental needs versus things like, I don't know, iPhone purchases or things that are less crucial in, in Western society. So Basically, okay, so the BNPL has been something that has largely been a newer innovation in the fintech space. I'd say within the last 24 months, it's really taken off. How long have you been in that space and what uh, when did you get in? So that's a very good question. I mean, it also depends on the definition of buy now, pay later, right? So yeah. we've started calling it buy now, pay later probably for the last 12 months or so when we realized that was the way to phrase it. We've doing the, the embedded finance and the checkout financing for quite a little bit longer. I think the big differentiator is that the, the reality of not being able to, to pay for goods and services at checkout is a much bigger problem in the African population than it's uh, in the rest of the world. Because the rest of the world, there is the capability of paying at checkout. People have the money to convert, whereas there's a much bigger drop-off if there wasn't a credit payment option available in emerging markets. All right. So we covered it today and you've alluded to where you want to see this go tomorrow. Talk to me about what you have planned in the near and far term for continued product extension and product line, well, for continued product line extension. We'll edit that. Absolutely. So I think near term, uh, the absolute immediate drive is growing transactional volume for the BMPL side and the store for fund side, which really means building out partnerships, ensuring convertibility of the money at further outlets, ensuring we use certain payment services provider to widen our spread quicker. Far term for us is really having a fully fledged bank account, insurance account, where a customer can access all and every single one of their financial services through us, rather than also needing other financial services providers. And the reason we think that's important is that today we can 
off for credit better than anyone else. But that's a leap. It doesn't mean we'll always be better than anyone else. So, you know, X years down the line, when other people start going into credit, credit is fully digitized, becomes a commodity. We want to make sure we've basically converted ownership of a client into our world and really achieve long-term client stickiness. If I look in the Netherlands, I still have, I, I grew up in the Netherlands. I still have the same bank account I've had since I was probably about four years old and went to open my first bank account at the bank. And I've never bothered to change because it works, right? And I think as we win customers, we want to make sure we address all their needs so we don't end up losing them again because that churn cost of of customers in the fintech space is expensive. And I guess getting more expensive with time as acquisition costs in financial services across all markets globally have always gone up with economic maturity of the underlying market. Yeah, they are definitely going up. I mean, it's uh, the low-hanging fruit of the digital realm is large here in this space due to all the competition. So I'm not seeing, hell, tech is not exactly going down these days. All right, so that does a pretty good job of covering what it is you do. I have uh, three blue sky questions we end, end this with to kind of end on a positive note uh, and make you think. So the first one is, if you had one wish for something you can change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? So... You know, I would love for the African rails to work as well as they do in India, where you can just digitally verify anyone's identity uh, and get access to their data in a readily, simple, straightforward way. Completely transform the way we can address the the underlying consumers. So basically, your wish is for open open data. This is a common common theme on here on this podcast: is the need for open data and open banking, whatever you want to, whatever sector you want to call it. Uh, so yes, I too wish that. Second question for you is: What's been the biggest challenge in the company to where it is today? So I think probably the biggest challenge has been talent, both yeah. talent retention and talent acquisition, and not just in, in the developer space, but consistently hiring, especially through a COVID remote working environment, getting people brought into the company culture and, and building together, creating that feeling of togetherness without actually being able to be together in the same office. It's probably been the hardest thing to do. Yeah, uh, another concern echoed by many people. You know, it, the biggest challenge is always people. But in this post-COVID world of uh, of everything being, well, I mean, even before we were doing a lot of remote work, but now it's kind of reached zenith. It's been a real challenge to try to build exactly what you talked about. Well, and it's the balancing act, right? All our senior people want to work from home and we need to keep them happy because we don't want them to leave and go work for Google or Amazon or IBM or someone that lets them. But all our junior people kind of A, want to be in the office and B, need to be coached and trained. So we have to kind of figure out how to get the senior people to the office enough so the junior people actually become senior without them quitting. Uh, I hear that it's and yeah, that's the challenge. I'm not sure about the part of the world, but it's funny. There was a the U.S. I was seeing all kinds of broadcasts about it for months, and then basically Canada we re- reopened later, and now I'm seeing all the same things happening here. Where you know, you're not accommodating what my current my current desires on on. Um, well, I think I'm going to go somewhere else. So big challenge. The last question I have for you is: What excites you the most about what it is you're working on, and keeps you fighting the good fight of, uh, of entrepreneurship in in the space? So I think it's 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 really the large uncovered population where actually we can see our user counts ticking up every day, but we can also see that the growth relative to the potential is still so slow. So Africa, you know, has been the last frontier probably for the last 30 years. But I truly believe it is going to convert and end up in the same space as a Brazil or a China or India. And you know, I think if we basically ensure we have the right platform build out then financial services has always been a good proxy for GDP growth capturing. 
And I think with the right platform, we can really be well positioned to to optimally benefit once that finally happens, whilst in the interim kind of making quite a meaningful impact, which makes, you know, makes it a one of the things that's, you know, doing both good and well. You know, you can make a good financial return while feeling that you're making a positive impact and, and really doing something that can completely change the way financial services are taking place on a day-to-day basis in an emerging market. So I agree on everything you just said and how important that is. I mean, the reality is, is that we've talked about this before. Financial is basically empowerment of humanity, right? At the end of the day, without a properly functioning financial system and the ability to access credit and capital, you just cannot lift countries out of poverty and into the next generation of wealth and just social. And never mind the level of social benefit that it does across gender and, and um, across gender and background spectrums. It is an absolute necessity. So yes, I applaud those of you operating in Africa and solving solutions that have been very challenging for generations with uh, new technology. Well done. Thank you very much. We're looking forward to a continued successful journey and uh, you know, with more and more attention of, of I guess, the, the Western world towards all emer- emerging markets to ensure that the, the necessary capital is also available to, to achieve that growth. Thank you so much for your time, Timothy. Very much appreciate it. Thanks. So that was uh, today's interview with Timothy Nui, founder and co-CEO of Inclusion. Hope you enjoyed that. And as well this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.